All right. Why I believe in the Bible today in our apologetic series, lesson number three, Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is alive. It is quick, which means alive and powerful, which has to do with energy. It's an active thing, meaning it's, a, it's effectual. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. In other words, it cuts with a honed blade, and it cuts between the soul and the spirit. What's the difference? The soul technically here uh, means that which gives us life consciousness. When you wake up first thing in the morning, you are aware that you are. You're not sure why. You're not sure where maybe, but you're aware that you are. Animals have soul in this respect. They have life consciousness. They know they're hungry. They know sorrow. They know happiness. They they know their master. There's a life consciousness. But the other part is the spirit. And that is breathed as, it means literally breathed. It came from God. When God breathed into Adam's nostrils, he became a living soul. And it was the spirit part that was made alive. Uh, The part of us that can know God is the spirit. And until we're born again, that spirit, the Bible says, is dead. But when we come to know Christ, then the spirit is made alive. And that's why it's born again. And it, it does this, this cutting, this, this, this uh, discerning between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow, or the innermost, best or essential part of us. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Jesus himself in Matthew 5, 18 said, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything be accomplished. So we live in an age now, folks, welcome to the enlightenment of America. I don't know. Uh, We live in an age that some describe as being ruled by moral relativism. Moral relativism. What is that? By definition, that means that uh, the, it's the doctrine of the knowledge of truth and morality and that they exist in relation to culture, society, or historical context, but not tied to absolutes. You know what that means? In other words, what's right for you may not be right for me. What's right for me may not be right for you. What was right yesterday may not be right tomorrow. What's right tomorrow may not be right uh, yesterday. So everything's kind of squishy. The idea of absolutes is rejected by our society today, uh, and absolute truth doesn't exist, some people say. But I want you to know I firmly believe in absolute truth. Uh, someone Regarding the Bible, I believe it is the truth. I believe it's the Word of God. Someone says, well, it's been translated and retranslated until it says uh, whatever a bunch of men wanted it to say. Well, I don't think so. I think that God supervised the word of God. And as it was given in the original languages, and we'll talk about that in a minute, as it was given in the Hebrew and the uh, Greek and and so on, as it was given in in about three or four different languages, it was absolutely uh, without error. Now, there are copyist errors. We know that we have those. They were were meticulously copied, and and the scribes would go through uh, details where they would would, uh, 
word for word, letter for letter, count the letters, count the words in a given line and verify and re-verify and re-re-verify what they were copying. And still, sometimes there were punctuation marks and sometimes there were numbers that were copied wrong. I don't count those as being a problem with inspiration. Copyist, I'm not saying every copy is completely without error, but I'm saying that the word of God given uh, as it was originally was without error at all. Some say it's no more inspired than any other holy book, like the Koran or the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Mormon. I would say to them, it is much more inspired than that. Or some people would go so far as to say, well, Shakespeare was inspired too. And that's the way the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were inspired in that generic sense. I don't think so. I think it goes beyond that. And then some will say the Bible is filled with contradictions. And I want you to know something. I mean, I've been pastoring and in ministry for just about 50 years, and never yet has anyone shown me one single contradiction in the Word of God. Well, I had one guy one time. I was knocking on his door, and he said, well, you know, preacher, um, his name was Jim Pagan. What a name, huh? <laughs> Jim Pagan. And, uh, and I was going door to door, and I was just knocking on his door, and I said, hey, I'm Jim Bates from whatever church, and I, I just wanted to talk to you. You know if you died today, you'd go to heaven. I mean, is that, that was the old, the old, the old uh, you know, cold contact, uh, soul winning, uh, you know, the kind that I hate when they come to my door. That's what, exactly what I was doing. <laughs> Yeah, and so uh, so I said, uh, "Do you know if you died?" He said, "You know what? I I don't believe all. I don't believe the Bible." Uh, I said, "Well, why is that?" He said, "Well, it's filled with contradictions." I said, "You know, filled with them?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "There's a bunch of them." He said, "Yeah." I said, "Can you show me one?" I, I've never had anybody show me one except he showed me one. He showed me where uh, the maniac of Gadara, where in one place in one of the Gospels said there were two uh, men that were deranged out of mind, controlled by demons, and and then he showed me another Gospel where he says one of them. Uh, came to him and said, you know, start dialoguing with Jesus. And I said to him, well, well Mr. Pagan, <laughs> you pagan, you. Uh, I, I, it doesn't say there was only one in this other gospel. It says one of them began talking with Jesus. I said, there were two. The Bible tells us there were two. I said, it's not a real contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction. And there are apparent contradictions in the word of God. There are no real contradictions in the word of God. Mr. Pagan became a born-again believer and got baptized and joined our church. So I don't know if he had to change his name. I'm not sure about that. But our society thinks that the Bible is not reliable for these reasons and other reasons. And we, not, we didn't used to think that, that way. Do you know that the Bible is the first textbook in America's schools? Did you know that? Did you know that the America's schools started out in the churches? Did you know that? Uh, that's exactly where they start. And, and the Word of God was revered and memorized and applied to everyday living. Uh, it was thought to be a book of wisdom, which it is. It was used and still is for swearing in. Uh, people in public office and for juries and so on. Imagine for a moment a society without standards. Imagine a 1 plus 1 could equal 7.62 or maybe 29 or maybe 73. Imagine that a foot could be 12 inches or maybe 54 inches or maybe 1,007 millimeters. Uh, you, you couldn't have, without standards, there would be anarchy in commerce and in trade and in science and in music and in medicine and engineering and almost all disciplines would be impossible to pursue without any kind of standards. And, and the fact is that the world without moral standards is the exact same thing. It is chaos and it is anarchy. And a world without standards really is not a world without standards. It's a world with many standards. 
you got yours, I've got mine, he's got her, his, she's got hers, everybody's got theirs, defined by whomever, whoever he or she sees fit. And for that reason, even those who don't believe in moral absolutes recognize there are disciplines where there are absolutes like math. There has to be absolutes with math. Um, and, but still, they'll say there is no moral absolute. I told you before, making that statement, there is no moral absolute, is a moral absolute. It's saying, I know there is no absolute. I am absolutely sure <laughs> there are no absolutes, so it's ridiculous. Now, uh, for that, so, so here we are. How do we get to this place? There are three individuals, and, and I don't, I'm not going to go into the, a lot of time with them, and I can't, mainly because I can't pronounce this guy's name. Uh, Friedrich Schiller, Schillermacher. Is that right? Schiller, sh- say it again. There it is, Schleiermacher, who is often called the father of liberalism. He was a pantheist, which means he believed God is in everything, everything's in God and his spirit. He, he hated orthodox historic Christianity in which God became a man to redeem us from sin. So uh, he wrote a book called On Religion in 1799, and he kicked off theological liberalism and rationalism and established a viewpoint that denied the word of God as being divinely inspired. Second guy we talked about uh, maybe last week, is it only a week ago? We talked about evolution creation, Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species, 1859. He wrote uh, that book and he also undermined the view of God as the creator and moral authority because if after all we are just a bunch of cells that spontaneously generated into higher and higher life forms, why do we have some kind of an obligation to a creator God? And then finally, the death blow came when I was a kid in school in the 60s um, when a guy named Joseph Fletcher came along and established the concept of moral relativism. In fact, I, I just I remember now somewhere in my library, I've, I, was a, I was a sophomore in high school when the, the idea, I think a sophomore, when the idea of God is dead came out. Some of you will remember that God is dead thing. And I wrote a thing to the Chicago Tribune and actually got published uh, back back in you know hundred years ago, whenever it was, and uh, and it, it was in it was denying this moral relativism and situation ethics and what's called the new morality. For two thousand years, rights and wrongs were generally recognized and defined because they descended from the very character and teachings of Almighty God, and because God doesn't change, His moral teachings don't change. Uh, the Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. He said, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, and Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13, 8. But with God being divorced from the equation, with God being forcibly removed from uh, that, that, that conversation, then, uh, then rights and wrongs change because society does indeed change. Uh, but uh, when you take out the fact that God doesn't change, then we get in this chaos that we have right now. God's law, by the way, some people say, well, God's law has changed because back in the Old Testament there were things you can't do. You know, there were, there were three parts to the law, generally speaking. There was the ceremonial law, which had to do with the tabernacle, temple, and sacrificial system, and so on, uh, holy days, and all of that, uh, uh, the, the feasts, and, and, and all of that. Those were ceremonial laws. 
those are not implicit on us. Those are not, we, we don't have to observe those. There were the civil and some call and or hygienic laws that had to do with uh, just living and making sure they didn't spread disease and taking care of mold issues and uh, taking care of, uh, I mean, just how to handle civilized people living together so that there wasn't a lot of disease and uh, refraining from things like shellfish. Uh, things like that, because and pork because of the the trichinosis and so on that they didn't know about, so on and so forth. But uh, there was the civil hygienic law, uh, civil law, how they were to act with each other, where the tribes were to be, and so on. And then the third thing was the moral law. The moral law has never changed. The moral law is still the same. Uh, so so that that does it. Now uh, Moses was not the lawgiver, by the way, and you and I are not the lawgiver. God was the lawgiver. God was the one who established his law. He's the arbitrator between right and wrong. And, and the, what we're doing right now, the, the law professor Stephen Carter aptly said, we are paying the price for having banished religion from the public life. I was in school when they took Bibles out of the school. I can tell you, there's all the difference in the world in the schools in the 60s and the schools today. All the difference in the world, early 60s. So the Bible is true. The Bible is God's word. I believe that. Psalm 119.89 says, Your word, O Lord, is settled in heaven. Forever is thy word settled in heaven. So what does the word Bible mean? The Bible is an English word that comes from the Greek biblos, meaning book. Now to the Christian, it's not merely a book. It is the book. It is the book, capital B. It's also called scriptures. It's called holy writings. It's called the word of God. It is composed of two major parts, as we have it divided in our Bible, the Old Testament, which is the Old Covenant, and the New Testament, which is the New Covenant. Canonization is a whole different subject, okay? We're not going to go into canonization. Um, It's for another day, but suffice it to say there's an agreement that there are 66 books. Now, I know the Roman Catholics uh, recognize some more, uh, and uh, they are called the Apocrypha, which means... Of doubtful origin. Apocrypha means of doubtful origin. But we have 66 books that we agree upon and written by 40 or so authors. And could, Bobby, can you turn the heat down a little bit? I am roasting up here. I don't know about you guys. And, and over a period of 2,000 years, these, these authors wrote. And, and the word of God supernaturally inspired by God. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. It's not a matter of one's own interpretation. It is not of any private interpretation. I have no right to interpret the Word of God however I want to interpret it. I can be up here ex cathedra or whatever else. It doesn't matter if it's me or the Pope. I don't have any right to interpret Scripture apart from the context and the meaning of the words that are used in the Word of God. It is not a matter of one's private interpretation from human initiative. Then it says in verse 21, the Holy Spirit moved upon these prophets and they spoke from God. The idea of moved upon is in the passive tense. They were moved upon. They were not the ones active in it other than God moved upon them and caused them to write. The words they wrote were God-breathed, which means inspired, 
but they were not automatons. They were not IBM Selectric typewriters or computers, rather. They were not programmed to spit out exactly what God said without thinking, just, you know, write out, right? They didn't type. They wrote. So write, 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 or they did like this on their uh, smartphones. They, they used their vocabularies. They used their artistic styles. They used their backgrounds. They used their areas of expertise to express exactly what God wanted preserved as his word. I believe that with all my heart. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All scripture is inspired, God-breathed. In other words, inspired by God. is used to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Uh, there are three Greek words that can be translated breathe. One of them is sukane, which means to breathe gently. So you just, like a little baby, just breathe. A little tiny breaths, breathing gently. Another one is air, which means to breathe consciously. I've, I gotta breathe. I gotta breathe. I'm gonna, or there's theos name, which means a forcible conscious respiration. That's the word used in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a forceful, conscious respiration. God forcefully and, and with purpose breathed in. They were totally conscious of the fact God was using them. Again, they weren't robots, uh, but, but he was moving them to write. And in that way, what they wrote, listen closely, what they wrote was verbally and plenary inspired, word for word and complete. It's not just the ideas that were inspired. It is the very words that were inspired. Now, in the original autographs, we don't have them. Oh, well, there you go, preacher. They're gone. Where are they? Why don't we have them? Why didn't God preserve them? Well, maybe knowing human nature, because they took that brass serpent that was on a pole and they began to worship it, maybe God in his wisdom and for his own reasons said, we're not going to leave the originals around because people would bow down to them and worship them. And that's not too hard to believe. People worship relics, people worship statues, people worship a lot of different things, even in the name of Christianity. And so we don't have the, well, then if we don't have the originals preaching, we don't have, really have the word of God. First point we're going to go into here, in fact, this leads right into the next point. We have more ancient copies and manuscripts of the Bible than we do of any other ancient writing in the world. Let me just give you the highlights. There are seven manuscripts of Plato known to exist today. Seven. How many have ever heard anyone question whether Plato really wrote? We have the Greek historians. You're going to have to help me, Dennis. Thucydides? Thucydides? Thucydides. Thucydides. Okay. I don't know Spanish, so I don't get these words. Thucydides and Herodotus have eight copies of their works today. Eight. Eight copies. The Roman historian Livy, I can say that one, has ten copies. And the same number of manuscripts, ten, were known to exist of Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And the historian Tacitus had twenty existing, has twenty existing copies. Homer by far has the most uh, with his Iliad having been preserved in 643 known pieces. 643, but the others were 7, 8, 10 copies. By way of contrast, conservatively, we have 10,000, 10,000 whole or partial copies of the Old Testament. 
10,000. Add to that the thousands of copies of the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the entire Old Testament that was done in the 400 years of so-called silence between the Old Testament or the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, uh, so that Jesus and the, the priests of Jesus' day had the Old Testament available in Koine Greek, which is what the common language was. They had it there. So there are thousands upon thousands of copies of them. Now, you say, well, okay, we don't have the originals. No, but we have such a plethora, such a huge number of manuscripts that they can be compared. And, yeah, there are little differences like you would have when you have differences in translating from one language to another, but not the essence. If you take all of the, even the apparent contradictions and put them together in a book this size, it would amount to about one page. One page, and none of them affecting cardinal doctrines. By the way, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 1947, amazing. Because already, because of German rationalism, because of these three guys, one guy's name I can't pronounce, but Dennis can, because of these three people, uh, they, they had started to move away from the fact that actually, uh, you know, the, the Word of God is really supernaturally inspired. They began to move, and, and, and it just says whatever people wanted to say. And then 1947, they start digging up and finding these partial manuscripts uh, that were written down in 150 B.C. to A.D. 70. And guess what? They are essentially the same. No major differences, none. So the Old Testament is far more trustworthy than the most unquestioned of ancient texts. What about the New Testament? How credible is it when stacked up with these works? Once again, the facts speaks for themselves. We don't have just seven or eight or ten fragments and manuscripts of the New Testament. We have more than 24,000 discovered manuscripts. More than 24,000. Not all complete. I'm not saying that. But more than 24,000. And more than 5,000 of these are Greek manuscripts providing ample attestation for the content of the biblical books. Winfred Cordunan asserts, he's a religious professor and a philosophy professor, no other ancient document equals the New Testament when it comes to the preservation of manuscripts, both in the term of number and closeness in time to the original autographs. And F.F. Bruce, an English scholar, said, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors, the authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. If the New Testament had been a collection of secular writings, listen to this, if they had been a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt true. The third point, the essential words of the Bible have not changed in thousands of years. The essential words of the Bible have not changed. in a th- Chapters have been added. Verses have been added. But the, again, the Dead Sea Scrolls verified the fact thousands of times over. Number four, the word of God is right on on the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, 40 to the authors, almost 2,000 years difference. 
writing in different countries, different areas, different times, and yet they all agree on the central theme, which is the blood of the Savior. I mean, from Genesis chapter 3, where God promises that the serpent would, would bruise the heel and, and, the, and the, the mediator would, would, would bruise the head of the serpent, from that first promise all the way throughout the theme that man is sinful, that God loved man, that God sent a Savior, that the Savior died, that he would rise again, his shed blood, his death, his resurrection, that we can be saved, all of that goes completely through, whether it's, whether it's Rahab's uh, red scarlet cord hanging uh, from the window, whether it's uh, the fact of the skins of the animals that were slain, their blood shed so that Adam and Eve's nakedness could be hidden. It's all one theme throughout the entire Word of God. Jesus Christ coming, his death, his life, his finished work, all of that. The Word of God, number four, also agrees with archaeology. There's substantial archaeological proof, and, and, and you can read, you can go into great detail. Let me just say, so they verified the, the city of Jericho, the, the city of Nineveh, the city of Ur, the city of Babylon. They, they've identified Megiddo. Uh, they have identified the tomb of Joseph, King Jehoiachin's uh, sites, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah. I mean, all of that verified by the Word of God. Some of the New Testament sites verified by archaeological discoveries based on the Word of God include Bethany, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Bethesda, Caesarea, Cana, Capernaum, Emmaus, Gennesaret, Jericho, Jerusalem, Nain, Nazareth, and Sychar, to name a few. The walls of Jericho that fell can be seen. Number five, the Bible is filled with reasons to trust it. Fulfilled prophecies are, are amazing. And and Fitz, you just got through with Daniel a little while. One of the most amazing prophecies in the whole world, uh, in the whole Bible, I should say. Well, they're all amazing. But, uh, but the fact that Daniel predicted at, at around 538 B.C. that Christ would come, as is, that the Messiah would come as Israel's promised Savior and Prince 483 years after the Persian emperor would give the Jews authority to, build, to rebuild Jerusalem. He gave, he, I mean, 483 years. He said that's when he's going to come. At that time, Jerusalem was in ruins. And yet here's a prophecy giving with such specificity. specificity. <laughs> Thank you, specificity. <laughs> I'm trying to say too much in too short a time. Hey, more than 300 prophecies of Christ coming. More than 300 fulfilled in the person. If Christ, if Jesus Christ wasn't the Messiah, we're sunk because he filled them all. Nobody else has even come close. The prophecies are fulfilled. The prophecies of the Bible are historically accurate. They're both specific and verifiable. They're not just some kind of general thing. Hey, scientific accuracy. Talk about even before secular science caught up with the roundness of the earth, Isaiah chapter 40, when back in Columbus Day, people believed the earth was flat. Almost infinite extent of the universe, Isaiah 55. The law of conservation of mass, uh, of mass and energy, 2 Peter 3, 7. Hydrological cycles, Ecclesiastes 1, 7. Vast number of stars. Do you know there was a time they thought you could number the stars and, they would have, and that would change as they got more and more powerful telescopes, but they start out numbering them in, in the hundreds and, and, and it would get increasingly more. But in Jeremiah 33, 22, it talks about a vast number of stars. The law of increasing entropy, the fact that the world is winding down 
down, that all these things are going to perish. The, the, the second law of thermodynamics in Psalm 103, verses 25 through 27. Paramount importance of blood and life processes. Hey, George Washington was bled to death. And yet Leviticus 17, 11 says the life is in the blood. Before we knew about you know, red blood cells and white blood cells and, 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 and platelets and all of that, God's word said the life is in the blood. And a prohibition to eat blood and to drink blood was given. Atmospheric cir- circulation. That does not apply to transfusions. I, I mean, seriously, the Jeho- I think Jehovah's Witnesses teach that you cannot have a transfusion because you, the prohibition to eat or drink blood. You're not, it's a whole different system, folks. When you pump it into the, the, the veins and the, and the arteries, into the circulatory system, that's not the same as, as, as consuming it. Atmospheric circulation, Ecclesiastes 1.6. Gravitational field, Job 26.7. The Bible is filled with science that science secularly had not caught up with yet. The indestructibility of the Word of God. It's indestructible. You know, Voltaire, everybody's heard about Voltaire, right? This, the French atheist who, you know, declared that the Bible would be dead in his lifetime. And when he died, his home was turned into a Bible bookstore later on. You know, that kind of thing. Western society cringes at the idea of censorship, and yet the Bible has been the subject of incredible persecution and censorship. In A.D. 303, the Roman emperor Diocletian ordered all Bibles destroyed, ordered it under penalty of death. All Bibles had to be destroyed. Just 22 years later, Constantine offered a reward for any remaining Bibles. (laughs) Within 24 hours, he had more than 50 complete copies of the Word of God. In 1199, Pope Innocent III ordered all Bibles burned, and anyone who tried to hide or stow away a copy of Scriptures faced house arrest. When Joseph Stalin came into power in the 20s, he ordered that all Bibles be purged from the USSR, and yet I have in my home, I meant to bring it and show you, I have a Bible from the 1800s that I bought in in Moscow on the street in Greek with notations made in Greek. You'd have to help me pronounce it, of course. (laughs) Doesn't matter what brutal dictator says to get rid of the word of God. Hey, China probably has more Christians. I mean, they do have more Christians anywhere else. Underground churches, the word of God. People have the Bible in China, though it's been banned for my entire life. The unique structure of it, all 66 books, 40 authors, 2,000 years, clearly one book, perfect unity and consistency throughout. The universal influence of the most, world's most famous paintings, 117 at least, depict biblical figures and, and many of the great hymns and great music besides hymns, the works of Bach and Brahms and Beethoven and Mozart and Hayden and, and Mendelssohn and Handel all reflect uh, biblical truth within them. And as Americans, if you know your history, you should not be surprised at the effect that the Bible and Bible teaching has had on the founding and the continuance of the United States of America. And on a personal level, the Word of God changes lives, absolutely transforms lives. It is sweeter than honey to the mouth, David said, and a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. It is that and more. The Bible above all other books 
is as authentic as life itself. The Bible is internally consistent, externally validated, miraculously preserved, comprehensively accurate, Christologically affirmed. I believe it. You know, you've, you've seen the bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You need to modify that, right? God said it, that settles it, whether I believe it or not. But I believe it, and I hope you do. Would you bow your heads, please? Our Father, we pray. We pray that we've not done any injustice to your word, to the high and lofty position that it holds, to the fact that the written word in so many ways is tied to the living word. God, I pray that we have not disrespected it in any way. I pray that we have been careful to present what you want to present. And if, and if, we, if we said something that was wrong, that God, you would dismiss it from our minds. But Lord, that we would realize that your word is amazing. It's how we know about heaven and hell. It's how we know about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. It's how we know what is right and what is wrong. And God, I pray that you would bring back the absolute teaching of morality in our schools, in our cities, in our churches, in our places of business. There's a reason why handshakes were all that were needed at one time because people had a morality that was impressed upon them from your word. God, I pray that you'd speak to hearts here. And if anyone here has not trusted Christ, may this be the time they do it. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if, if you're not sure, and for whatever reason you've rejected the word of God in the past, but you feel like right now as God impresses you that you want to trust Christ as your personal Savior, right where you're seated, you can pray something like this. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. The Bible's true. I have sinned and come short of your glory. I know that I'm going to die one day. That's a fact. Living on this earth comes to an end. I believe I'll stand before you at that time. By faith and because your word says it, I believe that your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins. And so this morning, I want to accept all that. I want to believe it by faith. I want to trust it. I want to trust you for everlasting life. I want to trust your word. So, Father, forgive me of my sins and be my Savior. In Jesus' name, with every head bowed, if you just prayed that prayer right now, I will not embarrass you, but just raise your hand up for a moment. Just hold it up real high. I just prayed that prayer, preacher. I've trusted Christ to be my Savior. Hold it up for just a moment. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word for the difference it makes in our lives. And we pray your blessings upon it and upon our ministry using it as we go from this place in a few minutes to eat, to home, to our neighborhoods, to school, to work, wherever it is, that we would take the word. Thy word have we hid in our heart that we might not sin against you. We pray in Jesus' name.